Hello, Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. Welcome to the Startup Seattle podcast. At Startup Seattle, we feature leading members of the Pacific Northwest startup community. We seek to have engaging conversations with founders, investors, and other key players in this community. Hope you find us interesting and support us by sharing us with your friends and colleagues. Today, I'm delighted to invite and welcome Vidad Mashmushi. She is a principal data scientist manager at Microsoft. Welcome, Vidad. Thank you, Krish. I'm very happy to be here and very happy to participate in this podcast. Wonderful. So you have a not so common last name, Mashmushi. Yep. Where does that come from? Uh, so I'm, I'm Lebanese. Uh, originally, I, I grew up in Lebanon uh, up until I was 21 when I came here for my PhD. Uh, so it's an Arabic last name. And, uh, and just, just for reference, it actually comes from the word uh, for apricot. So mushmush in Arabic means apricot. And I don't know where our last name is related to apricot, but that's, that's actually, if there's any root for it in Arabic, that would be the closest one. Wow, that's, that's, that's wonderful. So how is your, uh, you, you did your undergraduate in uh, Lebanon, in Beirut. Uh, yep. What was that experience like? Um, it was actually um, a lot of, uh, it was very interesting. I think when I started, when I was still in high school, so that was like, you know, decades ago, uh, I didn't really, uh, you know, have a lot of exposure to computer science or computer engineering. So I was good at math and then I was good in, in physics. So I was like, oh, you go into engineering. And that's where kind of we ended up with computer engineering. Uh, Turns out I was doing more of computer science uh, at that point than I realized. But then I was kind of one of those uh, areas where I really kind of fell in love with and I really decided to pursue my PhD. Um, and it's like uh, the American University of Beirut is really one of the top universities in the area. Yeah. Uh, we have really great professors, really great research. So it's really kind of sparked my passion towards computer science research. Uh, so I decided to apply to the uh, to the U.S. for my Ph.D. Uh -huh. and then um, I got accepted at uh, at University of Washington and decided to come here. Um, the anecdote about that that I like to tell is that um, you know it's University of Washington and you know I grew up in Lebanon. I don't really know the geography of the U.S. So I assume that Washington is in Washington D.C. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I was I was booking my airline ticket and I was like, okay, I'm going to Seattle. Back then, you know, you used to call Asians and yeah. you know I wanted to show off. And I was like, that's in Washington D.C., right? And the Asian was like, no, like this is the opposite end of the country. Do you know where you're going? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, Seattle. I'll figure it out from there. So that's how I learned about Washington State. <laughs> Oh my God, that's a hilarious story. I, you know, I, I, I hope you didn't land up in Washington D.C. and have to move all the way back to Seattle. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so, did you keep yourself out of uh, trouble in uh, Beirut? I mean, uh, we all know, you know, it's been uh, hit with strife uh, for a while. But did you were you uh, relatively sheltered during your uh, graduate studies? Yeah, I mean, uh, Lebanon in general, while the economy is very, I would say, fragile, it's actually a really uh, kind of peaceful and stable country like you know every once in a while there's something but typically it's a really great country uh, to to live in to grow up in but also to visit so uh, overall it's 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 very welcoming it's very peaceful um, and it's actually education is a big big component of, of kind of Lebanese lifestyle in general yeah. so yeah. it's been really great to kind of get to learn and get my undergrad there um, as well and hopefully Lebanon will you know the economy will improve and and uh, things will go back to how they used to be Yes, yes. Uh, it's uh, great for the United States that you are here. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so you are a principal data scientist manager at Microsoft. 
Yep. That's a lot of uh, words. Uh, <laughs> so data scientist. So, you know, when, when I left Microsoft, I don't think I had, there was any title called data scientist. This was like 10 years ago. So uh, what does a data scientist do for our audience? Can you describe what that entails? Uh, sure. So let me start by addressing what you just mentioned, that this kind of data science is this new, newish kind of say discipline, which is true. When I joined uh, Microsoft like eight years ago, we weren't really data scientists. We are called applied researchers. Uh, we we're kind of doing this, you know, not really in Microsoft research, but not really software engineers. So we're doing kind of this in-between uh, kind of work. And then three years into my stint at Microsoft, so I was at Bing, uh, the search engine at the time, there was like a specific need for like, oh, we kind of do a different kind of work. Uh, we're not really researchers. We wanted to establish, or Microsoft wanted to establish this as a discipline. So they created a data science discipline. And what data science is at Microsoft is actually kind of an all encompassing of multiple tasks and, and, and uh, kind of jobs you would do. Uh, so you have data scientists that are focused on building machine learning models. So for example, for uh, for folks at Bing who kind of are building these, these models to retrieve better results, to improve uh, the results that Bing returns for search queries. So you have that kind of component, which is around building machine learning models. Um, you have something that what I do, which is more on the A-B testing and the experimentation side. So the team and the experimentation platform, we're the platform that allows every product at Microsoft to run A-B testing. So there's really a lot of focus on statistics, on measurement, on hypothesis testing, and trustworthiness of results. So this is really a data scientist uh, role at Microsoft as well. You also have data scientists who focus on retention measurement, on understanding users, on predicting churn and retention. So the data science, uh, scientist, I think, discipline at Microsoft is kind of quite wide. And I think it's nice because it really allows you to get exposed to all of these different um, like roles and type of work. So you yeah. kind of, you are interested in machine learning, whether you're interested in uh, hypothesis testing, whether you're interested in predictive analytics, uh -huh. you kind of have a base uh, uh, at Microsoft. So I, I really like that, that aspect of it uh, uh, particularly. So it looks like the role of the data scientist was, was an evolution from what you call an applied researcher. Yeah. Is that common across the industry that uh, a data scientist uh, like how it is in Microsoft where, you know, um, you are, you kind of go across the board on various things. It's different actually. And I think that's what it's also challenging sometimes when people are looking for data science jobs. So as I said, at Microsoft, all of these different jobs are like data scientists. When you look at other companies, they have different naming for them. So you have things like machine learning engineer, you have things like a research scientist. Uh, that is doing kind of machine learning work. You have, you have people like statisticians. So that's why I think it's a bit harder sometimes to find to find a, like the best fit for you as a data scientist because different companies use different terminology for it and there hasn't been a standardization like with software engineering or yeah. product for example. So I think you know the the discipline itself is always going through an uh, evolution. So sure. that's why I usually recommend that you know if you see a data science uh, science uh, listing you're interested in, like look at the requirements, look at the kind of the responsibilities, and try to see whether you'll actually be a good fit because data science is just such this like big term that includes a lot of different uh, kind of job requirements. Okay, so as we as we uh, go through this podcast, uh, I'm sure a lot of people can figure out. Um, various useful things about, you know, what a data scientist does. Yeah. So how did you become interested in data science? Was it um, an accident or is this something that you deliberately worked on? 
It actually was an accident. So um, as I mentioned, I came here to do my PhD in computer science. And I was one of those folks who was like, I'm a mathematician. I'm really a theoretical computer scientist. So I spent most of my PhD or all of my PhD really like seven years just studying theoretical computer science. So this is like, uh, you know, you abstract uh, algorithms and computers and you just start uh, studying like how powerful they can be, how fast they can be, kind of more from a mathematical uh, abstract perspective. Uh, but I guess towards the end of my PhD, I kind of started feeling like, okay, I'm ready for something more applied. I'm ready for something uh, uh, kind of more uh, that, you know, th that you can see results in mm -hmm. faster than a two-year span. Um, so that's when I decided to kind of start pursuing an internship in the industry. And uh, kind of by happenstance, I, led, I landed at, at Microsoft. Um, I had this- It cannot uh, be happenstance. They are just across <laughs> the bridge. But it's like kind of out of all the companies, I think the the uh, my first manager, who's uh, like someone who's like I, I learned a lot from, he actually was the one to interview me for that internship. And what he described about that that role at that point in time was actually quite interesting. So the role was around metrics, so measuring user satisfaction with Bing. Um, and the, the reason why I, I, I like that a lot is because it kind of aligns with my own theoretical interest with, uh, around like measuring algorithms and uh, measuring how powerful algorithms can be. So kind of that measurement perspective uh, kind of is more interesting to me as opposed to the development aspect of things. So measuring a model um, like versus developing the model itself and kind of knowing what are the limits of computation. So I ended up doing the internship and I kind of, you know, the team liked me, I liked the team a lot and then ended up jo joining after that. And that's when I realized that actually this is an applied science role and this is not software engineering. So I would say I kind of fell into, into, into the role. It aligns with my like high level interests, but then kind of doing it more and more, I really realized like as this data science field, I think grew. One of the things is that for data science, you really need data. And one of the best places to get data currently is industry. So uh, like it's a, a, as, a, as an academic, you definitely have access to data, but really kind of user data when you're, the actual real world data really comes from the industry. So I find that actually aligns really well with data science research if you want to do it, to be in these, whether small or, or big companies, but kind of be dealing with kind of real users and how real users react to a product. So I'm going to take you back to first principles. Um, so we use the word data science many times in the last five minutes. Yep. How would you explain that to a 15 year old? Um, data science is really uh, comes to for me like two main main things: uh, mathematical maturity, so understanding mathematical concepts, and this is not necessarily about complex mathematical concepts. It's understanding probability, understanding basic statistics, um, uh, understanding uh, like just ha having uh, uh, being comfortable with numbers um, overall. So I think that would be, that would say like the first component of, of data science. The second one is what I call data skepticism. Always be skeptic of the data. Always think about like if I see a result that's interesting, like Twyman's law says, it's most likely incorrect. Where is my data coming from? How could it be flawed? How could it could what I'm seeing just be due to an error and not an actual insights that I'm finding? So this data skepticism where you're always checking, how's the quality of my data? What's the quality of my results? I think these are the two main components of data science. So good mathematical foundation and this skepticism that you always have about the results that you get. Does data science also then involve how that data gets presented to an audience? Like the, we've seen like some whiz-bang graphs, you know, visualizations and stuff. Is, or is that like a separate uh, aspect that doesn't uh, fit 
very neatly into the data science part of it. How, what do you think I, about I it? I would say it's an essential component of it. Like there's definitely a prereq of having good analysis, good good rules, like good insights and robust insights. But how you present them tend, like is really what makes or breaks your, your your analysis and your success. And it's something that I personally originally was not as uh, I would say I haven't like really kind of internalized this uh, as well. But really, as a data scientist, you do your work, but eventually the outcome of your work, the insights, the model are going to be used by, by uh, product managers, they're going to be used by your customer, they're going to be used by someone who's not necessarily a technical. So being able to present this data and tell them exactly what they need to do and focus on the right things, uh, if there are any caveats, how to present them in a way that's that they can understand that they can consume is super important and this is definitely something that i've kind of learned and and came across a yeah. lot as i do in my career is this is it's very essential how to communicate about your data and what's the message you're trying to learn uh, to, sorry the message you're trying to to land because it can be different for different kinds of people so right. i would say data science communication is yeah. a huge component of data science as well so and and you know the ability to ask the right questions uh, and, and use the data to present the answers to those questions is a critical part of it, I guess. Yeah, and and actually I want to say say uh, one thing about this is particularly when data scientists go through school, you tend to spend a lot of time on the methodology. It's like, oh, how can I can I develop this machine learning model? How can I develop this technique or learn these techniques? Uh, but then you eventually realize, I think particularly when you're dealing with the industry, is that a lot of the work is on two ends of it. First is defining the question, which is what you're just mentioning. Like, what's the question I'm trying to answer? Does this data help me? And then the, the last one is like, okay, I got the results. How can these results be insightful or actionable? A lot of the work is on those two components because typically you end up using simple techniques and you want the simple techniques that would get you kind of the, the best results possible. So definitely kind of, I think those two ends of the, of the uh, like trajectory, what's the question you're trying to answer? And then how can you present those results in an actionable manner? But I think where most of, of my work actually goes into. Got it, got it. And you mentioned a few times uh, the phrase machine learning model, right? Yeah. Can you unpack that for us? So um, what is the model and why does machine learning, uh, how does machine learning play into a model? Sure. So with machine learning, what you're trying to do is we have all of this data that we've collected. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the simple examples to think about is you have images and it's images of either dogs or cats. Yeah. Um, and you, we assume uh, kind of, and then I can talk about this a little bit more, that we know that each picture is saying this is a picture of a cat and this is a picture of a dog. Um, so one way of trying to see, uh, to kind of do this machine uh teaching is, is, is or, or learning is one component is you want to teach the computer how to detect that, you know, you have a dog or a cat in an image. One way of doing this is to develop some kind of algorithm that just relies on the structure of the image itself, on the pixels, you can do some scanning and so on. So this is kind of, you are coming up with a procedure and then you're feeding that procedure to the computer. With machine learning, what you're trying to do is to say, actually, I'll just let the computer learn this on its own. I'll just give it all that data and then and, and, and kind of tell the computer every time that like, actually this picture is a dog, this picture is a cat. And then the, the, the computer on its own would develop that model, that almost like cognitive model, right? And so it, it, what it's meant to represent is like how we would learn, how a baby would learn. It's just like by this repetition, by seeing 
the data and learning from it every time. Every time you see a, a, a dog, you tell the baby this is a dog. Eventually, the baby will form that idea of what a dog is. And this is kind of a similar concept uh, in, in machine learning. Um, but then in order to do that, you really need kind of this, this specific model of what you're trying to do. Eventually, mm -hmm. the model is a mathematical model that you're building. It's a set of functions that you're learning. There are parameters there or uh, kind of some components you need to determine. So that's where the model comes from. You're kind of creating this, this, this procedure or, by, uh, or the computer kind of is learning it by looking at more and more data. So you get this machine learning component because the computer is learning on its own and it's forming that model that will eventually be used by the computers to, when they see a new image, can detect, okay, this is a cat, this is a dog. Got it. So you're 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 seeding the uh, the the computer or the algorithm uh, a, a base set of data from for which you are uh, you know you're seeking an answer for right yep. and, and then um, but then you know you don't you don't feed it a million images you feed it like a, a reference set a small set and as it sees uh, new um, uh, new images or new uh, data coming from uh, as an input it's going to make the right judgment as to what it is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So by kind of seeing enough uh, images early on and knowing what their answer is, the computer is able to determine the answer for any new image that comes in. Got it. So now, you know, you, you, you described the um, cat versus dog, right? Now, within the dog, uh, I want to be able to say, I want to be able to, for the machine to say, you know, is, is this a husky or is this a, a Labrador doodle, right? <laughs> So that is like a more involved aspect of it, which means like, you now have to feed more data or is there a, is there some more innovative way, non-brute non force way of telling the machine how to go deeper into that? So it depends. Like if you're, if eventually you think the computer is only going to get like these two types of dogs, it's kind of similar to saying, you know, it's two labels eventually, whether it's cat or dog or poodle or husky, it's two labels. However, one thing you can do is, uh, you know, if you have already a trained a certain model about cat versus dog, can you possibly take some of the learnings that you had from there and try to apply it to a different to a different problem? Which just in this case, separating like say poodle from from husky. So there are there are uh, techniques that you can do things like called transfer learning, where instead of starting from scratch and then saying oh, I'm going to train a new model completely from scratch, I could start with something that has learned something similar and then kind of updated with new data so that this way you don't necessarily need as much data to get to this, to solve this new problem. You can leverage some of that learning that happened before. So it's kind of the concept of transfer learning where you're, you're kind of transferring one model from one problem to another problem space. Wonderful. Um, and you mentioned uh, A-B testing, right? Yes. A-B testing has you know, become a huge field unto itself Yep. I don't know what the origins of A-B testing are, but it seems to have come from all the, you know, SaaS and, uh, and huge web applications, you know, since uh, uh, the start of this decade. Um, so tell us, tell our audience, you know, what A-B testing involves, the significance of A slash B, sure. and what are some of the problems that you have uh, used A-B testing for? Sure. So A-B testing is really this concept of um, you want to test a certain change, a certain treatment you have, and you want to know what's its impact. Um, this is very popular, for example, in clinical studies. So pretty much every drug go goes through what we call, so it's, they're called randomized controlled trials, for example, which is very similar to A-B testing. So what you're trying to do there, you take users, you take 
people and uh, you kind of randomize them to two groups. And you want to get these groups as similar as possible so that you, you're able to at the end say, okay, the only difference between those two groups is that I gave someone a control or the A variant that we call it, and a group the treatment or the B variant. So because those groups are very similar, the only difference between them is that maybe someone did not take the drug and someone took the drug. And then what, you give them that treatment and then you kind of look at them, possibly do some tests, possibly look at their data over a period of time. And then at the end of that period, you say, okay, I'm gonna now compare uh, the, the, these two groups, the control and the treatment groups and see is there an improvement in, in a specific metric I care about? In randomized controlled trials, it's usually about, you know, have we cured the disease or not? Is the drug having the intended effect? Is it reducing a symptom? Is it reducing the disease or not? So eventually when you do that comparison at the end, because you randomized and because you controlled for everything, you're confident, you're more confident that the change that you are seeing is really due to your treatment. And you can take that concept and applying pretty much to any change any uh, any uh, any habit you want to implement any kind of particularly in, a, in in kind of products uh, in tech products uh, uh, particularly so we're talking about about uh, uh, me being at Bing so you can take any product and say I want to make a change in that product I possibly want to change the font color I want to change the font size I want to change what results do I show I want to change the click the button the color of the button the position the text on it but you will not know what's the really the impact of that, kind of almost unless you're on an AD experiment. And the reason for that is there are multiple um, external factors that could impact the usage of your product. So one example that we've been recently is COVID. So if you just look, for example, at usage of, of Teams or Zoom in, um, in during COVID, it skyrocketed, right? Sure. Because there was this external impact causing it. So if one might assume that, oh no, usage of Teams just increased because all of the cool stuff that we shipped. But that might not be true, right? Because, you know, it's used because users are- The landscape itself changed. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's why with A-B testing, what we do is we, we account for these seasonal factors by kind of monitoring two sets of users where the only difference is that someone saw a change and someone did not. And that's really what gives you that confidence that the change that you observe at the end of the period is, is due to the change you've introduced. So we have multiple products at Microsoft that that, that kind of use A-B testing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is, is, is one of them, Teams, like I mentioned, and many, many others as well. I'm sure that is uh, quite useful in many e-commerce settings, like conversion, uh, if, you know, cart abandonment, right? People abandon uh, shopping carts on one path. So I guess A-B testing can be used to figure out which path is the most effective? Exactly. And, and it's actually heavily used in those scenarios as well, because sometimes you really, uh, you're, you have also unintended consequences as well. So you have some, like with every company, with every product, you have some top level metrics you want to improve. Revenue can be one of them. Conversion can be the other one. And if you don't track those metrics as you introduce changes, there is always the possibility that you unintentionally regress them. You might introduce a bug in the code that make the, I don't know, checkout uh, button, like for example, gray, and then you won't see it, and then the user won't see it anymore. So before, it's, I actually think of A-B testing as a way to protect the user. Instead of just shipping my change immediately without testing it, I'm, I'm 
from testing the, the change to see if it has some unintended consequences or if it actually has beneficial impact on the user. And this is heavily used in e-commerce, in search engines, pretty much any, any web page that you interact with have, should have some kind of uh, A-B testing enabled for all the changes that they want to do to make sure that they're not hurting their users. So um, typically, how long uh, uh, do A-B tests run? Is that scoped quite narrowly or can some things run for months and years? So it depends, right? So some products have an immediate short-term impact. So you can think of a, a, a retailer or an e-commerce website. Usually your session there, you're trying to buy something within, I don't know, a few days or something like that. However, you have other products that are more seasonal. So you can have things like um, Airbnb, for example, where like in order sometimes to see the impact of a change, it takes a really long time. So that really should be taken into account how, to has lo how long you're gonna run that experiment and what's the impact you're trying to see. But typically you don't want to be running an experiment for a year because you know usually uh, as business needs come up, you wanna make that change. You wanna make a decision relatively quickly on whether a change is worth shipping or not. Mm -hmm. So you wanna take that into account and kind of try to run, uh, to run uh, experiments in a reasonable amount of time so that you're able to make a decision, a timely decision for the product. Um, so you can think of like, you know, a, a couple of weeks to a few weeks uh, to run an experiment. So I'm sure uh, there is uh, probably a lot of tools that, that are necessary for A-B testing, right? Because, you know, you don't want uh, people doing different uh, uh, different principles of A-B tests. It's got to be uh, a good, good sort of best practices and good tools to be able to do A-B testing. Are, are you actively... Do you actively develop tools for uh, your group to be able to do these? Yes, uh, so so that's really the, the team that I am in. It's called the experimentation platform. So it's really a platform that has kind of all the tools associated with like starting your experiment, running the experiment, uh, creating the metrics that you care about because which metrics you want to measure is super important to make sure you detect the effects that you're uh, that you're interested in, and then kind of analyzing that experiment, visualizing the results. So really, A/B testing is really kind of this life cycle. Um, kind of, uh, it, it's an experiment life cycle. The experiment goes through multiple stages, from like the design to starting it to running it, all the way to kind of making a decision based on it. And you really need, particularly if you're running experiments at scale, uh, like like we do at Microsoft, uh, it's it's necessary to kind of create a robust and reliable, but also most importantly, trust for the um, uh, 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 platform, because there's the saying, it's just like gar garbage in, garbage out. So if you don't include trustworthiness um, as a kind of a pillar in A-B testing, you don't trust, you can trust the results that you get. And it's actually, you know, it's worse to make decision on bad data than to not have data at all. Because you could randomize yourself and make uh, worse decisions. Exactly, exactly. And since we're talking about this, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do a shameless plug and point people to our uh, MSR blog. So we actually, uh, my, my team, the experimentation platform, we uh, we write a kind of, uh, we maintain a blog where we talk a lot about experimentation, how to uh, kind of uh, build an experimentation platform and scale it, uh, what are the trustworthiness the important trustworthiness patterns you, should, you, you need uh, to, to, to look for. So if you just look up the experimentation platform at Microsoft, uh -huh. uh, you find our, our uh, blog there as well. Sure, sure, sure. We probably include that, a link in our uh, show notes. So uh, with that, uh, you know, I made your acquaintance um, in the Seattle Angel Conference uh, where uh, you are an angel investor. So, and yeah. um, uh, you've looked at a number of companies, right? And, and especially, 
in your area of expertise, which is you know AI, ML, uh, and data science, uh, we have seen many companies make claims, right? That um, you know we have the best uh, AI engine, the best model. Um, so when you are evaluating a company making such claims, uh, what do you uh, what do you look for? Uh, is there something that you zero in right away, and then you can call BS, or you realize the value <laughs> on it, or you know how do you do that? Uh, that's a that's a good very good question. I think one of the things, uh, particularly as, as part of my involvement with uh, the Seattle Angel Conference, is um, you know you're coming in as an investor and you really with angel investors, so you really want to help the, the 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 startups that are at early stage. So for me, one of the like biggest uh, I think kind of uh, alarms is when I hear like it's a kind of AI based company because at that point I'm going to start asking more questions as to. What, what's the problem you're trying to solve? How did you get the data for it? Uh, uh, how is it different than any other AI model over, uh, out there? So I think uh, one thing to be careful about, I guess, as a startup is that when you're making these claims, like uh, like AI or machine learning, like, you know, what they're building a machine learning model is to really have a good answer for these, uh, for these questions. And there are many successful startups that have made innovative uh, uh, kind of products around in, in this space, but, it's a buzzword to say AI and ML, and I really kind of caution people against using it when it's actually not necessarily the case. So what usually my advice is, you know, just even saying data-driven is actually a lot of, I think the big, the first bit of steps or hurdles in being a data-driven company. So it doesn't have to be AI to bring value as long as you're able to use that data in a way to give insights I think that's that's like that's most for me that's most of the way as the company or as a startup scales and grows you can kind of add more of these of these techniques on top so if it's not an essential component of the service that a startup is 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 providing right. i'll definitely have questions about why like do we really need this how are you getting the right data for it are you testing it properly or not so what are some of the common uh mistakes or shortcomings that you've seen uh when uh you know, companies present in front of you, especially with respect to saying, you know, we are data-driven, we are AI ML-based. Um, of course, you know, the goal is to help them improve and, you know, get them better at their pitch. Um, but what are some of the things uh, that you commonly observe uh, as, uh, as, you know, weaknesses? Uh, so I think one of the main things for me is that when when a startup claims they trained a model based on data, is really how did how was it was the data collected? How was it labeled? Like is it actually is the data representative of all the scenarios that the, the, the product will see or the user will will present? So for me, the data collection, the data labeling that's used to train a machine learning model is very important uh, because it, some people say like, oh, just you know, I collected some data, labeled it myself and kind of just trained a model based on it. Like th that might have a lot of selection bias in it, meaning the data that you chose is not representative of the kind of data that you'd see in your product. So this is really usually one of the biggest uh, first questions I ask. And then the second one is when people start using or developing complex AI models, particularly when they have, when we know that, you know, uh, some models already exist, like is it reinventing the wheel? Why not leverage models that exist out there already and then just build on top of it so for example language understanding models is one of them right so we there are a lot of state-of-the-art models available so if, if we're trying to if a startup is trying to target a specific scenario it's much better to build on existing solutions and to re 
um, recreated from scratch? And if they are, what's the reason for it? So I usually, these are the questions that I ask, like what led to this specific model versus another? Um, and then the last component for me is testing. How did you test your model? Uh, what kind of data did you collect for that? Uh, what are the metrics that you're using? Um, and then one other component that I think is more and more is more and more relevant, I believe, is kind of whether your model is actually uh, kind of where does it fall in terms of responsible AI? Um, are we making the right decision uh, based on the model? Are we uh, disadvantaging maybe a certain population based on this model? Have you have we tested that? It might not be possible that we would have tested all of this, but I really want to see people thinking through this because things can go wrong quickly with, with AI models, particularly when the data is not large. Yeah. So I really want to see, and like the founders or the startup team have thought through these, some of these questions Got it. Uh, uh, for that. So um, say, say if I were uh, graduating from college or even graduating from high school, um, and I've heard all these, uh, phrases thrown about AI, ML, data science. Um, if I want to seriously go into that field, what are some of the uh, resources or suggestions that you can give to people so that they can be on the right path? What are some of the things that you would want people to go do uh, in order to go in towards that path? So, uh, the, the good thing now is that there's a lot of like data science programs directly in colleges that you can kind of get into and get exposed to. But one of the things I really uh, uh, kind of would, would recommend, and this goes back to what I started the conversation with, is mathematical maturity. So in, in really, in order to be a good data scientist, you need to have this good mathematical uh, this foundation. So invest time in learning statistics and learning probability and kind of identifying, like, sometimes you might need algebra for some more uh, machine learning uh, techniques. So invest in having good understanding of, of, of math and probability, because I think that's very important in, in, in data science. And then, as I mentioned, colleges are really offering these tracks for data science uh, They so that you can kind of pursue um, as part of a, well, it's a standalone degree or possibly as a minor or a, or a separate track. Um, so that's, I think, definitely in terms of like the education itself, I think you really need a good, strong education in um, in, in math, in, like in math, in math mm -hmm. but also there are a lot of resources that exist out there to just help you get exposed to this really wide field. For me, like, you know, as, as evidenced by me doing this podcast, I'm a huge fan of podcasts. There are many podcasts around data science, data skeptic podcasts. There are multiple multiple ones I could I could recommend but there's a lot of resources that exist uh, out there to just expose you to the field what happens in the field uh, there are many that uh, like interview data scientists women in data science is a podcast is one of my favorite as well to just know what kind of work happens in there so educate yourself around it there's a lot of blogs about it so expose yourself to kind of the 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 uh, kind of more of the industry world of data science because that gives you an idea as to the type of problems that get solved and you can find your passion in, in one of them versus the other and then you can kind of get a more focus in that area uh, so reading listening uh, is, is, a, is a big component of it as well so as you go through your day do you look at say let's say you're reading a newspaper story or you listen to something on the tv or in a podcast do you put a data angle to that and um I mean, if it, if it says, for example, you know, 50% of people oppose uh, this amendment, uh, do you then, you know, do you try to take everything through a data angle or, you know, how do you uh, go about your life without being uh, hijacked by data, if you will? 
so actually, I'll, I'll share something even kind of closer. So uh, I am expecting uh, a, a baby in, in a few months. And uh, one of the things you want to learn is like, what, you know, what's good to do and what's not, uh, what's not to do in a, in a pregnancy. And then when you start seeing all of these recommendations around, you know, these, um, I'm not going to go in details on them, but like, oh, this study says that if you do this, you know, your baby's going to have this, this problem. It's very, like, it's, it's very hard for me to just not pick those apart. Uh, because like how the study is presented, how many users were in the study it, it, like it, it's you know that data skeptic hat is already <laughs> is already there. and I'm trying to understand like okay how large was the study did we did we randomize the users were like uh, where is there any selection bias in in the in the study participant that you've had so it's right. been really an interesting journey for me kind of wading through all of these guidance that you get kind of around pregnancy and understanding which ones actually have robust studies behind it and which one doesn't. So uh, actually uh, it, people like my friends always mention to me that, uh, you know, when they're around me, I'm going to be asking all these questions around the the data that went into a certain decision. So right, right. I think of my day to day life. <laughs> I mean, congratulations on on uh, you. on, on your pregnancy, and uh, um, I'm sure you're probably a, a great fun at a party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure, like a lot of people are, like you know, throwing stories at you, and you just pick them apart <laughs> with I'm, your data. I'm... I've been known to be the person who's like, okay, like a joke is being told and like, I'm usually fine, but like sometimes if people can say jokes like, no, 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 no. Like, let's be precise here. <laughs> the statement that you said. <laughs> it happened before, but my, my friends, I hope, love me for it. So. <laughs> right, right, right. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, because yeah, you, you, some people could actually play pranks on you by setting up stories and, and yeah. getting you to go to the deep end, right? <laughs> that's, uh, that's wonderful. That's very hilarious. So, uh, wow, that's, uh, that's great. Um, Vidad, I really thank you for sharing your expertise. There was a lot of insight into that. I think people listening to this podcast are going to take a lot in terms of how to approach data science, you know, what, um, what a data scientist does. And uh, there's a lot of uh, gems in this in terms of machine learning and uh, uh, AI and how to evaluate companies that make claims on this. Good luck for uh, for your work at Microsoft and for your upcoming child. Thank you so much, and hope uh, we can um, you know touch base in the next uh, couple of maybe year you know a year or so and see how things are going. Sounds great. It's been my pleasure uh, to be here, Chris. Thank you so much. Thanks to you for tuning in. We always like to hear feedback from you. You can tweet to us at Carabiner Media One. That is C-A-R-A-B-I-N-E-R-M-E-D-I-A and the number one. You can also send us email at startupfeedback at carabinermedia.com. We hope you share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and also rate us in your favorite podcast platform. See you next time.